So let's pray and ask God for his help. Our Father, we pray that as we look at this pretty simple passage, um, but pretty piercing passage, that you help us to understand it. But we pray more than just understanding it, that you will help us to be people who don't just... Uh, who are not like that man who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. Help us to be people who remember your word, who bring it to mind on occasions when it is relevant. And we pray, Father, that we would be the sort of people who put into practice your word in our lives. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I sometimes find that I can take something good and turn it into something bad. I can take good things and make them bad. Let me, let me just give you one example. Uh, I know it is good for me to discipline my children. The discipline of children is a good thing. I know I should set appropriate boundaries and consistently enforce them. Discipline is good. But for me, discipline so easily degenerates into something bad. I get tired and I flip-flop from one extreme to the other. I'm either so tired I can't be bothered disciplining, I just lie there and the kids run riot all around me, or, or else... I get tired and I get grumpy and I start stomping around like some fascist raving lunatic. Uh, disciplining my children is good, but with my failure of consistency, I can take that good thing and turn it into a bad thing. Sad to say it's not the only area of my life that I can manage to do this. There are often good things that I manage to turn to bad. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in this letter of James, we saw that God is jealous for our total allegiance. Jealous for our total allegiance. And yet at the same time, he graciously forgives us for all our failures. He gives us, do you remember, he gives us more grace. And so, do you remember the response from a couple of weeks ago? We ought to humble ourselves and submit to God. Well, now in this next section, what James is doing is he's giving three practical applications of what he means. Practical applications of what it means to humble, humble ourselves and submit to the God who is jealous for our allegiance and yet gracious towards us. And, and each one of these three examples is an example of what I'm talking about. An example of where we take a good thing and turn it into a bad thing. The first example. The first example is that of uh, speaking against people, of, of making judgments and speaking against people. Slander and judgmentalism. Now, to the modern, tolerant, so-called mind, we see judging as just a bad thing. Um, one of the first verses that will come to a non-Christian mind, perhaps the favourite verse for non-Christians nowadays, is do not judge lest you be judged. But we need to remember that there is a right place for discerning rebuke in the Christian life. If someone wrongs us, it is good for us to talk it through with them. The Bible says, do not hold bitterness in your heart, rebuke your neighbour frankly. There's no point pretending it was fine if you're stressed about it. There's no point wallowing in bitterness. Better to address the issue, what you did hurt me, and sort it out. Uh, it is also right that if we see other Christians doing something stupid or sinful, that we talk to them. It's not fair to use Cain's excuse, I'm not my brother's keeper. Right? It's not fair to turn a blind eye. We need to have the guts and the care to help each other live God's way. Now James himself finishes with these words. I've put these on your outline. You can see where I'm now, left-hand side, about halfway down. My brothers. Here's how James ends his letter. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, 
Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's clear. You've got to be discerning. There's got to be, there is time for making judgments and for lovingly pointing them out to people. But rebuke can also be distorted. It can very easily degenerate into judgmental slander, into maliciously speaking against people, and that's the issue that James addresses here in chapter 4. The first, the first problem he points out about slander is that it's against God's law. God's law said that Israel were not to slander each other. I've put it on your outline from Leviticus 19.16. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. God's law says don't slander. And so here's what James says. You might need to listen to this as a little bit of a leap of logic. He says, if you break God's law by speaking against people, you're not just speaking against the people. You're speaking against God's law that says don't speak against people. He says, uh, if, if you break God's law by judging people, you're not just judging people, you're judging God's law that says you shouldn't judge people. Do you get what he's saying? Have a look at it. Chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter, James chapter 4 and verse 11. Brothers, do not slander anyone. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Okay, so slander and judgmentalism go against God's law. But more than that, they go against God himself. God alone is the judge of his people. He alone has the right to save or destroy. He alone has the result ultimately to say, this person is wrong, this person is right, and to publicise that. It's not up to us to judge our neighbour and publicise our judgement to all and sundry as if anybody cares. That is God's prerogative. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? All right. On the one hand, we're called to, to turn sinners from the error of their ways. But on the other hand, we're not to slander or judge in a way that infringes on God's sole right of judgment. A little bit of a balancing act. And yet... It's not as hard as it sounds. We know the difference, don't we? Caring rebuke versus judgmental slander. It's a whole different vibe, isn't it? Uh, one is about looking after people, helping them to stay on track, seeking reconciliation and relationship. The other is about making ourselves feel good by putting other people down. We make ourselves feel good with the judgment, I'm right and they're wrong. We make ourselves feel good by telling anyone who will listen how terrible this person is. I think we can sense the difference pretty easily. Probably the way to sense the difference is if you don't want to say it, you probably ought to. If you do want to say it, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> right? I think we can sense the difference pretty easily. Now, we might want to uh, justify our slander by calling it pastoral care or sharing prayer points or something like that. And, uh, and we might try to criticise other people's genuine pastoral care by saying, who are you to judge me, calling it judgmental slander to get ourselves out of it. But deep down we know the difference, don't we? We know the difference most, most of the time, most of the time anyway. All right, so let's apply what James has said to ourselves. Are there times when we judge or slander, when we speak against other people, try to make ourselves feel better by speaking against other people? Can you think of any? I reckon there are heaps. Uh, and I reckon it particularly comes out in areas where the Bible gives us 
plenty of freedom to make our decisions. Uh, we do it with money. We look at each other's stuff and we make judgments. How could he justify driving that car? I remember for about uh, six months I had a Saab. A number of people who said to me, oh, you're doing well as a minister, aren't you? We'll have to pay you less. How could you afford a Saab? <clears throat> How could he justify driving that car? How could she justify owning that handbag? Uh, we do it with children. We look at each other's discipline and we make judgments. She's slack and her kids are wild. He's too strict and his kids are oppressed. Uh, we, we do it with schooling. We criticise each other for going public or private or whatever. We do it with women who stay at home. We do it with women who work. The list goes on and on. We find so many ways to stick our noses into each other's business and make judgments. Now again, don't hear me wrong. There is place for us to discuss these matters. Uh, there is even place for us to challenge each other on these matters. But we need to remember that God is the judge. People stand and fall before God, not before you. You'll be too busy standing or falling before God yourself. And so we've got to be very careful of our motivations. We need to ask ourselves, as we are feeling the need to identify someone's sin and speak out against it, we need to ask ourselves, why am I saying this? Why am I saying this? Why am I saying this to this person when I'm talking about that person? What is going on with me? Am I, uh, are my motives pure? Am I being like the AFL player, jumping on someone's back to take him? Am I putting myself up by putting someone else down? I suspect if we honestly stop and think through our motives before we start talking, there are plenty of times when we ought to keep our mouths shut. Don't you? Don't you? Uh, that's point number one, slander and judgmentalism. James' second point is about planning, making plans for the future. Now again, planning is a good thing. It can be a wise thing to do. As the proverb says on your outline, the plans of the diligent, see where I am down near the bottom, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. There is no godliness in chaos. There is no virtue in disorganisation. But again, says James, if we lose God from the picture then that good thing, planning, can become bad. It can, be, can, be, become, excuse me, it can become arrogant and foolish. So James addresses some people in the church, some business people among the Christians, and he talks about their planning, about their vision and mission statements. Yeah, they're making all kinds of grand plans. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James says, without God in the picture, planning is sheer presumption. We don't know tomorrow, let alone the future. We don't control the future. Our lives are like a breath. Hevel, you might say if you were a Hebrew scholar. Verse 14. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We're not in control of the future. And so as we make our plans, we need to take God into account. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James says it's boastful 
to plan without taking God into account. It's arrogant. And now that we know this good thing to be doing, to take God into account in our plans, for, for us to forget God, for us to plan without him is sinful. Verse 16. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Okay, how does this one apply to us? I think it's worth saying this is not an excuse for laziness and chaos. Doesn't mean you can't have a vision and mission statement. Doesn't mean you can't own a diary or even one of those Blackberries or iPhones or one of those other silly things. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't make schedules. Doesn't mean you can't have rosters, sad to say. Doesn't mean you can't make decisions and plans about the future. Organisation is wise. Organisation is good. Planning is sensible. Helps us to be good stewards of the time and money that God has given us. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. But having said that, What James is saying here ought to make a real difference to our plans. And he's not just talking here about some kind of a mantra to add. Make your plans, say the magic words if God is willing and then everything will be okay. No, no, no. It goes way deeper than that. What this means is that we need to take God's will into account in our decisions. That's going to have all kinds of implications. Uh, It means, clearly that we cannot make plans that go against what God says. Let me give you some examples. We mustn't make plans to steal. We mustn't make plans to commit adultery or to hurt other people. We mustn't make plans that mean we forsake meeting with other Christians. I had a guy at church once come and tell me that he'd been offered a job overseas in a Muslim country. I said to him, what are you going to do about church while you're over there? He said, oh, I'll just have to read the Bible on my own for a few years. I said to him, it's not God's will for you to take that job. I said, because God has told you to not forsake meeting together with other Christians. Apparently God was offering him a lot of money, so the bloke didn't take my advice. But can, can, can you see the point? If we are going to make our plans in accordance with God's will, it means those plans have to be obedient plans. We mustn't go against God's commands. But it's more than that. It's more than not just breaking commands. God has a plan for the world and a plan for you and a plan for me. And it's not some mystery or secret. He's told us exactly what his plan is. His plan is to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus. God's will is to grow us in maturity as Christians, to grow us in our knowledge of God, to grow us in our obedience to God, to grow us in our love of God and our service to his people, to grow us in our passion for Jesus and letting other people know about his greatness. God's will perfectly clear he wants us to grow to maturity as christians and so if we're going to make our plans according to god's will we need to think about how those plans those decisions will impact our christian life how will that holiday impact on me as a christian how will that job impact on me as a christian how will that relationship impact on me as a christian will it grow me Will it enable me to serve or will it lead me away? It's not just a question of does God allow me to make this plan. It's a question of is this plan good for me as a Christian? On your outline there I've recommended a book. It's a most helpful book if you want to think more on this subject. It's called, uh, can you see the left-hand side at the bottom there, Guidance and the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. Not a long or a difficult book but a very, very helpful and encouraging book. 
I think, to think about this topic. Okay, that's James's second point. Uh, we need to take God into account in our planning. Uh, James's third point, I'm sure you'd be happy to know, is about wealth. Uh, particularly the ideas, the issues of hoarding wealth and exploiting people to get wealth. Now again, uh, wealth is a good thing. Wealth is a blessing from God. Proverbs 10.22, there on your outline, right-hand side at the top. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. Wealth is a good thing. It's not something to be ashamed of. But again, it is possible for this good thing to be bad for us. In James chapter 5, uh, he turns to some rich people. Rich people who've been hoarding their wealth, that is, keeping it all for themselves. And James says they ought to start mourning. Because a judgment day is coming, a day when they will lose all their wealth, a day when their hoarded wealth that's just sat there with them and rusted will testify against them, testify that they are greedy, selfish sinners. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. These people have greedily kept all their wealth for themselves. In the last days, the days before Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. But not only are they hoarding, they've exploited people. They haven't paid the people who worked for them. They've condemned and hurt innocent people, maybe even caused their death, perhaps by withholding their wages or something. Uh, these people, they live in luxury and self-indulgence, and meanwhile they're stingy exploiters of other people, causing other people to suffer. Verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now the picture I get in my head there is of these big pigs rolling happily in the mud, greedily stuffing themselves, little realising that they're fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. Powerful image, don't you reckon? Now I should say that I don't think James is addressing Christians directly in this section in chapter 5, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Uh, he is pronouncing condemnation here on these rich hoarders and exploiters. There's no evidence of grace. And if you look at the next verse, which we'll do next Sunday, you'll see that James turns to the brothers and he encourages them to be patient in their suffering. So I think James is talking about rich people of the day who were exploiting and hurting the Christians. He's pronouncing their condemnation like a prophet pronouncing condemnation on the nations or something. I don't think this is dealing directly with Christians. Having said that, as the saying goes, if the cap fits, we need to wear it. And so as we look at this, we need to ask ourselves, are we exploiters like these people were? Or are we greedy, self-indulgent hoarders like they were? Okay, again, let me remind you, being wealthy is not a sin. Money is not evil. The created things of this world are good. God says we're to receive them from him with thanksgiving. But we've got to be very careful that we don't let this good thing become a bad thing for us. 
So let's ask a couple of hard questions. First, are we exploiters? Do we exploit other people to get benefit for ourselves? Do we make ourselves rich at the expense of the suffering of other people? Now, I'm hoping that none of us do this directly. I hope we are paying our employees fairly, uh, whether that's employees at home like cleaners or lawnmowers or tradesmen or whatever. I hope we actually pay them what they're due. I hope you haven't got unpaid accounts and bills and people are not suffering because of, uh, because of your exploitation and failure here. Uh, I hope if we employ people in our business that we are ensuring safe working conditions, we're giving fair wages and super and long service leave and all of that other stuff. I hope we are. I hope we're not ripping people off with lies or scams. Nobody's involved in pyramid schemes and things like that, I hope, in our church. I hope that any work that we do for other people, we do with quality, with integrity, with care. We're not ripping people off by our laziness. We're not half doing jobs, taking shortcuts. I hope we're not exploiters at those sorts of levels. I trust we're not. If we are, we need to repent. Right, but I think, I think for us nowadays, the problem's a little more complicated than just face-to-face. Because although we might not know it, uh, some of the stuff we enjoy is costing other people dearly. Uh, where were our clothes made? Where were our shoes made? Were they made in sweatshops overseas? Where do the components for our computers and our phones come from? Do they come from African countries using child labour, child conscription, fighting wars over these sorts of mines and so on? Uh, where does our tea and coffee come from? Does it come from slave labour plantations overseas? I have to say, I don't know how far to take this one. Uh, I'm not sure how far our responsibility will go. It's all going to be brought to light at the last day. I wonder at what point our ignorance is going to excuse us on Judgment Day. How far do we need to do? We need to investigate everything we buy and make sure it comes to us without exploitation. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't want to overstate this, but I do suspect we need to be a bit more careful about our purchases. Don't just go and buy the cheapest thing because it was made in a slave labour shop in China. Uh, I think it's worth our while thinking about fair trade products and stuff like that. Uh, it's worth our while trying to buy from known sources, sources that don't exploit people. Uh, we don't want to show up on Judgment Day having turned a blind eye to all the ways that we benefit from exploitation, all the ways we've been living off cheap stuff while other people have suffered. You see the point? Okay, what about the other thing that James talked about? Are we hoarders? Are we hoarding wealth in the last days? Are we living in luxury and self-indulgence on this earth? Are we like big pigs fattening ourselves in the day of slaughter? I suspect this cap may fit rather too comfortably on our heads. And even if James isn't talking directly to Christians, the quotes on your outline definitely are. I'm being safe. I'm going to show you some quotes that definitely are for Christians. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy what to say to the rich Christians. So on your outline, let me read it to you. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
bit later in the chapter, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There's plenty there to think about, don't you reckon? Uh, are we content with what we have? Do we realise that we can't take it with us? Are we aware of the dangers of the love of money, how easily we could be led astray? Are we putting our hope in wealth, as if it can give us our identity, as if it can give us our security? Are we generous and willing to share? Are we laying up treasure as a firm foundation for ourselves for the coming age? Uh, we need to be careful, don't we? Because there's a world out there suffering. Uh, we don't want to be like uh, blind, selfish pigs wallowing in self-indulgence, fattening ourselves for slaughter on Judgment Day. We mustn't hoard our wealth. We need to be generous with what we have. Well, friends, uh, have these good things turned to bad things in your life? Has your godly rebuke turned into slander or judgmentalism? Has your planning turned into arrogance and presumption? Have you hoarded wealth and exploited people to get it? If so, we need to change. I remember our God is a God who gives us more grace. Forgiveness is available through Jesus. Power to change is available through the gracious gifts of God's Holy Spirit. We stand before God, right with him through Jesus, declared right through his Son, but now let's humbly submit ourselves to God. And let's not let these good things go bad anymore. Let's stop with slander and judgmentalism. Let's take God into account in our planning. And let's be godly and generous with the wealth that God gives us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank and praise you for uh, these good things that you give us each other to look after each other, that uh, you... Uh, do give us wisdom to make plans and that you do give us wealth as stewards of, uh, of what you give us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would not let these good things become bad in our lives. We pray that we would stop with slander and judgmentalism. We pray that we would take into account in our planning. We pray that we would be godly and generous with the wealth that you give us. We pray that you help us in this by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.